the epistle of Jude, the penultimate book of Holy Scripture. And go to Revelation, turn left, a couple pages, you'll get there. The epistle of Jude, the word of the Lord reads, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage." But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Please join me. 
Gracious God, we come before you in the name of your precious Son, Jesus, and ask that you would take the eternal truth of your word and cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. Sanctify and edify your people this day as your word is preached, and may you bless your servant with the boldness and clarity to declare your word faithfully. For those among us who do not believe, Lord, I ask that today would be the day that you call them unto yourself. We ask that you do a mighty work in all of us this morning, and in Jesus' mighty name we all pray. Amen. Well, beloved, if you're anything like me, you need reminders. I use reminders for everything at work, everything at home. If it's not in my calendar, it does not happen. Perhaps if you still have an analog clock, you had a reminder to change them last night. Have you ever met anybody who has a photographic memory? Somebody with an uncanny sense of recall? Someone like Miss Jill Price, who was the first person ever to be diagnosed with what is now called the Highly Superior Autobiographical Memory, or HSAM, a condition she shares with only 60 other known people. She can perfectly recall the events of any day from the age of 12 to present with clear, accurate recall. Or someone like Charles Nalder Bayerts, who was a publisher and a music critic in New Zealand, who had the capacity to memorize an entire page of text with just a glance. Or perhaps somebody like Mr. David Boas, an American litigator who is frequently described as having a photographic memory that allowed him to memorize legal text, page numbers, and exhibits that he'd only seen once. I would not have wanted to compete against any of these people in school or trivia night. <laughs> For the rest of us, our memory doesn't work that way. It has a propensity to fail us, especially as we get older. If you're like me, the details of this morning's breakfast fade away as you pass through the threshold of the door on your way to church. Scripture is peppered with reminders. Scripture is in itself a reminder of who God is and what he has done for his people. We read it, we understand it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we strive to live according to it, amen? But we forget so quickly. We listen to and engage with Scripture being preached week in and week out, yet we recall maybe at most 5% of what was preached just last week. Pop quiz, just kidding. <laughs> On top of this, God is infinite, meaning he is without end, and we will continue to learn about him for all eternity. So the scales are tipped against us, even now that we could ever hope to remember perfectly everything contained within his holy pages. Adding insult to injury, just think of the distractions of this modern world that deflect our attention away from God. It is of no surprise that we are lacking in the area of scripture memorization and recall. And it sets the stage for Satan to do his work. He attacks the church from within, as we have learned. We are rendered defenseless if we do not know the word as we ought. False theology that sounds good, morally good, makes its way into the church, into the ears of the saints, and it causes division. Division and departure from our communion with God and our communion with each other. Despite all of this, God is gracious. He is sovereign, amen. As his precious church, the prize for which he died, he helps us in our weakness, in our shortcomings, and in our flat-out ignorance, and I'll be the first to admit that. He provides constant reminders throughout his word to aid us in our understanding of him, to build us up, edifying us that we would be molded and conformed into the image of his son. 
as we've just reread the epistle of Jude for a third time now, we are embarking on our third and final sermon in this beloved epistle where we will focus on verses 17 through 25 in a message entitled, Remember, Remember. Now it is by God's sovereign providence that we are in this section of text, speaking of reminders on today, the 5th of November. <laughs> but Jude's epistle is meant to help the church and be encouraged in the face of all falsehood. So I do hope that today we remember, remember the 5th of November, amen. We've spent two sermons so far weaving our way through the text. We find ourselves in verse 17 where we will begin our exposition together. If you're a note taker with us this morning, we will diagram the closing section of this epistle into three reminders. By way of synopsis, Jude has up until this point identified himself to whom he is writing this letter and his purpose for writing. The bulk of the letter is spent warning the church about and detailing the type of people who have deviously crept in unnoticed. They've slipped in with the express intent of leading the flock astray, false teachers. We spent a significant amount of time in our last sermon distinguishing what false teachers look like while keeping in mind the thesis of Jude's epistle, which is the appeal and exhortation to the saints to contend for the faith. False teachers have arrived and are at work destroying the church from within. Here in the close of the epistle, Jude continues his written exhortation to the church with our first reminder to remember what you have heard. Look with me, if you will, starting in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Here he lovingly addresses the church to pay mind to the teachings that they have heard from the beginning. Jude is telling his readers that despite the arrival of false teachers within the church, they need to remember the words of the apostles, those who are specifically called by God with special authority, which has long ceased, amen? The apostles had warned the church that this spiritual incursion, this invasion of false teachers would happen. Many pages of Holy Writ are dedicated to the warning against false teachers, false prophets, and false doctrines. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, distinguishing themselves as apostles of Christ. Again in Galatians 2, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. Peter in his second letter writes that false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And John in his first epistle, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The list, which is not exhaustive, goes on and on. And of course, it reflects the very words of our Lord in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. To be clear, Jude's word predictions does not need, mean anything like fortune-telling or Karnak, magnificent. Simple etymology reveals that the word simply means pre or prior and diction, meaning word or speech. He's referring to what the 
apostles have previously said on the matter. And he declares the importance for striving for unity within the local church. In reminding us to remember these words, Jude also mentions that we are in the last time. He says, in the last time, these things will happen. While these people, these scoffers, these mockers have crept in, as of the time of Jude's writing of the epistle and things have not changed in the last 2,000 years, so we too can conclude that we are in the last time. We are experiencing the already and the not yet. Jude's letter then becomes eschatological in nature. What we can glean from this quick use of the word in the last time is how we ought to think about our brief time here on earth. If you only had a set amount of time to say one last thing to a loved one, what would that be? If you knew for certain you would never see them or speak to them again, what would you say? Jude makes it clear that although his epistle is brief, he uses each and every verse to exhort the church to contend, contend, contend for the faith, round after round, never giving up or giving in until he calls you home or returns, amen? We are in the last day. Paul also reminds us that the church is in the last times in both of his letters to Timothy, his first letter, chapter four, the spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And again in 2 Timothy, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, with self, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Does any of this sound familiar to what we experience here and now? We are in the last time the enemy has arrived with the intent to do damage from within. The apostles and Jude are dead serious in stating that in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Psalm 1, which our brother Austin read from this morning, starts, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In Proverbs 21, verse 24, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. What Jude is pointing us to is that false teachers are such scoffers. None are as arrogant or as prideful as those who falsely parade as teachers within the church to stand up and promote their schemes in the name of truth, to lead others astray. Their audacity is their doom. Following their own ungodly passions, they spit in the face of God and God's word, leading people into error. Their imminent judgment is rightly deserved, amen. It is astutely said that pride cometh before the fall. Jude continues in verse 19 that it is these people who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Once again, Jude offers another triad, his very familiar literary term. 
In case he hasn't been clear, he provides the reminder that these false teachers, their aim is to divide, to divide the church from their communion with God. They divide the church from within, pitting people against each other, disrupting unity and spreading false doctrine and error. These people are worldly, they're immoral, mockingly prideful, and clearly devoid of the spirit. Beloved, these are not believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because these things can only be spiritually discerned. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, period. These false pastors lead their congregations not to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They lead their congregations to fuel their own egos, completely focused on their own glory, their influence, their bank accounts, all in the name of Jesus. It's sickening. Jude makes certain that his readers understand that we are at war. These people have entered the church. They are at work doing the bidding of their father, that is the devil. And worse yet, some have fallen astray under the tutelage of these false teachers. Matthew 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This corruption within the church should upset you. It should make you want to do something about it. Falsehood within the church sends ripples far beyond any one person or congregation. One of the unique ways in which Christ has established his salvation to his people is that while we are saved individually, we express the fruits of this salvation corporately together. We are united together in Christ as one body. Ephesians chapter four, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Remember, in the opening verse of this epistle that we just read, Jude addresses this epistle to those who are called, those who are beloved in God the Father and those who are kept in Jesus Christ. To properly digest all that Jude is saying, the readers of this epistle require eyes to see and ears to hear. The true church of Christ are called salvifically. They are beloved in God, that is beloved in God's love towards his son, in whom and for whom we are kept. Given by God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. Preordained, foreknown by God to be saved in the fullness of time. Our understanding of the word, what we know of God that has been revealed to us, our theology needs to result in doxology. Our orthodoxy must inform our orthopraxy. To put it clearly, what we know about God as it has been revealed, as we grow and mature in Christ, this knowledge doesn't mean a thing unless it causes us to worship God to praise him, to extol him, to magnify him, to adore him. This knowledge that results in praise should be visible by our conduct, 
our personal holiness before the Lord. We are the same on Sunday as we are at work on Monday, at the grocery store on Tuesday. Christ has redeemed us. He has made us new creations. And we look the part. We do not look as we used to look prior to being saved. Amen? Therefore, as a corporate body comprised of many members, we receive the exhortations from Jude to the church with some practical application. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, even hating the garment stained by the flesh. Jude's epistle, however brief, is so very important to us. Jude's pastoral heart is on full display. He loves the Lord, his earthly brother, his heavenly king, if you recall. Therefore, he loves the people of the Lord. Do we feel the sense of urgency with which Jude is writing? Recall that he had wanted to write a different letter, one of our common salvation, but was redirected by the Holy Spirit to write this letter, an emergency alert broadcast appealing to the saints to contend for the faith. And now here, Jude turns his attention back to his readers. In verse 20, we see our second reminder, be the church. Beloved, how does Pastor Robert end each sermon after the benediction every week? More often than not, he implores us to be the church, to encourage one another, to pray with one another, to stir up love and good works among each other. Amen? This is discipleship. It's living out our faith in Christ together as the body. Jude says, but you, church, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, be built up that is edified in Christ Jesus. We are encouraged to build upon the foundation of the apostles, the word, Christ himself being the cornerstone. We are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord daily. We spend time individually in the word. We disciple each other. We mortify sin in the flesh. This is sanctification. We have been set apart for righteousness and are being further conformed to the image of God as we walk by faith. By way of the Holy Spirit, this type of living is directly rooted in our diet of scripture. To neglect scripture as a Christian is as harmful as to neglect air to breathe. This isn't a how-to sermon, but to build one's self up in the most holy faith is to be satiated in Christ and satisfied by his word. The present progressive verbs in the exhortation capture for us that we need to be constant in building up in the faith. And to be abundantly clear, I'm not calling for a theological shift from monergism to synergism, but we are not hyper-Calvinists. Nowhere in scripture are we called to sit back, let go, let God. There is no biblical call to have Jesus take the wheel. We are called out of death by Christ. We're called to live in obedience to him, to live in humble submission to his will. Ephesians chapter two, verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised 
us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We can wax poetic all day about the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, but that is not the focus of Jude's epistle. Colossians chapter two, with which our brother read from this morning in verse six, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." Do we get this, beloved? We have a duty. We are co-responsible for building ourselves up in the faith. Jude continues his exhortation that we are called to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Again, another present progressive verb, we are to be continual and constant in prayer, relying upon the Holy Spirit. Beloved, are we not so completely and utterly dependent upon God for all things? Does our prayer life reflect the magnificence of him to whom we pray? Are we praying for each other? Do we ask for prayer ourselves? Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. There's nothing magical by saying that we're praying in the spirit If you are a true Christian, you have the Holy Spirit who intercedes, making your prayer perfect and acceptable to God. It is also part of how we are being built up in the faith. Romans 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Jude's exhortation to build ourselves up in the faith and to be fervent in prayer keeps us in the love of God. Verse 21. Now this is not a proof text to argue against the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Scripture interprets scripture, amen? Contextually, having exposited the text up until this point, there is no provision here to assume that that was Jude's intention. John MacArthur writes that if it were possible to lose your salvation, you would have. We did nothing in ourselves to merit salvation in the first place and there is nothing we can do to lose it and amen for that. So we press on, we stay the course, we continue in the faith until he returns or calls you home. We are kept for Christ. As we learned in the opening verse of the epistle, we are keeping ourselves in the love of God through obedience. We will see shortly that it is God himself who is able to keep us from stumbling into falsehood and into error. So as we are building ourselves up in the faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God, we are exhorted to wait. Hurry up and wait. 
all of that building up, fortifying the defenses of the church, the long hours in prayer, the study of the word, sharpening your sword for battle, just to be told the opposite of what you'd expect. It is not the call to charge forward into the fray, but to wait, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting for the Christian is not merely biding the passage of time, as Albert Moeller puts it, but there is intentionality in our waiting. There is an end to it. We wait with purpose. This isn't take a number, sit down, and wait for your number to be called. This is active. Jude exhorts us to wait for the mercy of the Lord and look forward to eternal life. Now it is true, we have experienced the mercy of God in our justification. Mercy, by way of reminder, is not getting what you rightly deserve. In relation to grace, which is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting eternal death and judgment, the full wrath and condemnation of God for sin and the everlasting suffering in hell, which is the penalty rightly deserved for each one of our sins. In Christ, we don't get that. Christ took the full weight of sin upon the cross for all of his redeemed. Only the God-man could possibly take on the full unmitigated wrath of God. That is mercy. Juxtaposed with grace, where God in his goodness towards us not only bears the punishment that we deserve, but he grants us his own righteousness and he gives us eternal life. This is the great exchange, double imputation. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. It is not merely that we are saved from eternal damnation, but that we get to rejoice with him for all eternity. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's grace and that's mercy, and they are both merely attributes of who God is. We experience both at the moment of conversion. We experience them actively in our daily walk with Christ, we will continue to experience his mercy and his grace through to the moment that our faith becomes sight and we pass on from this mortal coil into his everlasting embrace. There, we will experience the fullness of God forever. Amen? If you're here today and this is all foreign to you, this God to whom we offer our praise, who we are talking about, who we are learning about, if he is not your Lord and your master, you haven't placed your faith and your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your sins, repent. Repent and believe. Believe in the only true God and you too will be brought into his everlasting embrace. Jude states that we, the church, we are waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Again, Jude is being eschatological. He points us back to the last time. This mercy not only upholds us here on earth, but it will result in the complete fulfillment of God's promise of eternal life, guaranteed. Titus chapter two, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
Beloved, are we zealous to serve the body, to love one another as we love ourselves? Since we have some time to kill and the tension between the already and the not yet, we should spend it productively. We're called to show others the same mercy with which we have been shown by Christ. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Ever in Jude fashion, we come to yet another triad. This triad deals with how we are to live out this faith for which we are contending. Number one, to show mercy to those who doubt. This isn't the same as pity. We don't pity those who doubt. Satan's first recorded words in scripture, did God really say, was to drive the wedge of doubt into Eve's mind. Culture is no different, asking in everyday conversation, did God really say that? You actually believe that? Isn't that a bit dogmatic and narrow-minded? Are you a bigot? If we're honest with ourselves, we all deal with doubt in some capacity. How would it look if Christ just pitied us for doubting our salvation? Would it do us any good to be divine recipients of his pity? No, we need grace and mercy. We need the gentle yet firm hand of the Lord to guide and to encourage us in the midst of our doubt, to reveal himself in a mighty way that drives the clouds of doubt away. And we therefore are to do the same unto others who doubt. We have been shown such a great mercy, so we respond in showing such a great mercy. Matthew 14, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? Given how God has revealed himself through Christ and given us the Holy Spirit, it does seem a silly question. But let's not underscore the need for mercy to combat doubt. Pray for the opportunity, should it ever come, to show this type of mercy to a brother or a sister who is doubting. Amen. Would that you be so blessed should you be in a doubting place. Second, Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Evangelism is a divine mercy, beloved. To think how close to hell we were prior to God granting us life in Christ. There is a real sense of urgency with which Jude writes this exhortation. Snatch them out of the fire. They'll burn if you don't. Share the gospel, beloved, first to yourselves and then to others. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Now, no amount of effort we can expend will ever bring a single soul to saving faith. It is Christ and Christ alone who does so. It is Christ who can break the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh to unstop the ears and to give them eyes to see, removing the scales that they can see him afresh in his glory. But we must obey his words. The gospel must go forth from our lips. It must be preached. It must be listened to. We too were once brands plucked from the fire. Think on that. How God had saved you. What were the means of your salvation? Who in your life helped you to see Christ in his glory? Do we see the urgency for us to share all the riches of his grace to others? Life is short. There are wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, celebrity deaths. Tomorrow is guaranteed to no man. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Amen. Third, Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
With all fear, with all respect, with all deference, beloved, we must understand the absolute sinfulness of sin. We are not to mess around with it. It is powerful, it is enticing, it is slippery, it leads to more and more sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Show mercy to others, specifically in evangelism, but be careful, beloved. The sheep will hear their master's voice no matter how long it takes, but a goat is a goat. Goats don't turn into sheep. You must be discerning, beloved. Know that it's not the best time to evangelize in the East Village after 2 a.m. when the clubs close. Men, don't evangelize to single women one-on-one behind closed doors. There are souls to be won, souls in need of being shown this mercy, but consider the cost. God hates sin. He is the God of light, and in him there can be no darkness. Don't go about doing the Lord's work and sully yourselves in the process. Now, this imagery of garments being stained by the sin takes us back to Zechariah chapter 3, where we see the vision of Joshua the high priest. In verse 3, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. We too are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Don't get dirty, amen? We're waiting for the mercy of the Lord that leads to eternal life. While we are to wait, we are to show mercy to those who doubt, show mercy to those who need salvation, plucking them out of the fire before they burn, and to do so carefully and with discernment that we don't fall back into sin ourselves. As we transition now into the closing section of the text, having been exhorted by Jude, we now change our focus from us to God. To God himself in one of the most beautifully poignant doxologies in all of scripture. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a tremendous doxology that directs our gaze back on God. We have focused thus far on ourselves, on false teachers. We are called to remember the words that were spoken, remember to be building ourselves up in the faith praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of the Lord and showing mercy to others. Jude rightly ends his epistle, his appeal to the church with another reminder, our third and our final reminder in the text. Remember, beloved, it's all for God in his glory alone. Soli Deo Gloria, amen. Sovereign God, who fashioned us, knowing all the details of our life before the foundation of the earth, It is to this God who loves his people, the agent of our salvation and our sanctification that we offer our complete devotion to him who is able. Speaking of the omnipotence of God, Jude draws from a long list of scriptures that speak of God's ability. This might seem funny, right? Almost rhetorical because he's able to do these things, right? He's God. In truth, what we are to see from Jude here is not that God is able, rather that we are helplessly unable, unable to keep ourselves. Didn't we just talk about being kept 
keeping ourselves in the love of God? Yes, we did. But we cannot hope to do this on our own. Left to ourselves, we wouldn't and we couldn't. Apart from the Lord's strength and mercy, we are hopeless. Unable to save ourselves from sin, unable to sanctify ourselves, unable to mortify the flesh, unable to pray in the spirit, and unable to build ourselves up in the faith. God is able. God is alive. He is the living God. He is not a God of stone or wood or man's creation, but God eternal. We are so prone to stumble, beloved, amen? To stumble into temptation and to sin, but God is able to keep us from stumbling. Remember, the purpose and the aim of false teachers was to lead astray, divide, and delude. These are things we can stumble over. False doctrine, false teaching, false teachers are all rocks that the ship can crash upon. Jude's warning was extensive, and he now wants his readers to see that it is only possible not to trip over these things through the loving care and protection of the Lord. Jude continues to build this benediction that he not only, God, keeps us from stumbling, but he presents us blameless before the presence of his glory. Christ, after his life and his death, his ascension, his resurrection, he sits at the Father, the right hand of the God the Father Almighty, amen? Doing what? He ever intercedes on behalf of his people. His mere presence alone intercedes for the saints. He, in and of himself, is our perpetual intercession to God where he presents us innocent, blameless. Again, the divine mercy of the Lord on full display. What do we deserve? We deserve for each one of our numberless sins to be punished for all eternity in hellfire. But God laid the blame and the guilt upon Christ and it is his imputed righteousness through justification by faith alone that we could ever stand before the throne as declared holy. We're presented before his glory. That is his full unveiled intrinsic glory. The radiance that caused men to fall down dead to lay prostrate in the dust and bemoan woe upon themselves, undone by a mere reflection of his glory. In Christ, we can stand in the presence of God and not perish. Rather, we enter into this eternal fellowship rejoicing. When Christ presents us before the throne of God, he does so with great joy, like the joy of a father seeing the joy of their children. Christ takes joy when we have joy in our salvation. We who are poor in spirit are rich beyond measure in Christ. The outcome of our salvation is eternal enjoyment of God. And Jude concludes in verse 25. To the only God, not one of many, not lowercase God, but the only God, our God, our Savior, through the agency of the second person of the Godhead, Christ Jesus, our Lord, remember Jude wanted to write of salvation. Here in the closing verses of the epistle, Jude is acknowledging that salvation forged by God and the person, work, and worth of Christ. Jesus, who stepped down to this earth, taking on flesh and humanity, did not lay down his deity, but when the appointed time had come, laid down his life upon the cross, that all who had been given to him by the Father would enter into the joy of their master. To him, the matchless name of Jesus be all glory, all majesty, all dominion and authority. We talked about glory. 
God's intrinsic glory. And here we see the ascribed glory of God to give glory to God, the glory due his name. To him be all majesty, that is his sovereign power, his omnipotence that moves the heavens and the earth, creation bending to his ever command. To him be all dominion. There is not an inch over all of created order that God cannot say, mine. He delegated dominion over the earth to Adam and through sin, Adam forfeited dominion to Satan. Satan was defeated through the resurrection of Christ over sin and death and now Christ reigns in glory. His dominion has no limit and everything is in subjection to him. To him be all authority. Definitively and succinctly all authority flows from God. He is the uncreated one. His word shall never fade. No teaching, no false doctrine, no mere man. Nothing has authority over God and what God has commanded, period. He is God. To him we offer our worship, our praise, our adoration. Him we serve, we trust, and we obey. God is God before all time. He is preexistent. He is preeminent. God is God now and forever. He is the same yesterday, today, and for all eternity, never changing, never failing. And now we come to the hardest word to exposit in the entire epistle of Jude. Amen. Amen is a Hebrew word meaning certainty, truth, or a verily. It is used to express a solemn ratification or hearty approval of something that is faithful, reliable, believable, and true. It is a word of acclamation, a total agreement of what is being said. It is a word to use when there are no other words to use. So what shall we say to the things we've heard this morning? What do we say to all that Jude has taught us in this little epistle? What do we say to the God who saves? Everyone on the left, everyone on the right, everyone in the middle, all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, we praise thy name for you are our help and our salvation. To you be all glory. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask that you would bring about the harvest in our hearts, that we would be holy unto you for your good pleasure. Use these ransom lives in any way you choose. In Christ's precious name, amen.